Good morning. For a scripture reading, I will be reading from two passages. The first one is Psalm 100. Psalm 100. One of the things that we talk about often is how awesome God is and what he does for us. And so how do we, a question I asked myself or I found myself asking as I read through this passage is how do we come before a God who is awesome, who is so far ascended above us? we being his creation, and he being the creator. I will now read Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Next, I will be reading from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we, have conf- since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, or through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is truly astonishing that the Lord invites us to draw near. The question Skylar asked there is, I think, one of the key questions of life. How do we come into the presence of a high and a holy God? And it's, it's the the key question that we really want to be addressing here today. Um, Our text is from Psalm 66, and I invite you to open your Bibles to that. Psalm 66. The poet in Psalm 66 is consumed with the glory of God. He's overwhelmed with God and his being and his doing. He's caught a vision of God, of God's glory, of his kindness, of his saving acts, 
and he's amazed. He's almost stuttering in amazement at this God. He's caught a glimpse of God, and he can't stop talking about it, and he wants us to catch that as well. So this this psalm is shot through with amazement. Verse 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Verse 2, sing the glory of his name, give him glorious praise. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome. Verse 8, bless our God, O peoples. 16, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. 20, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So the poet has seen God in action, and he can't stop talking about it. And this is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. God reveals himself, and his people respond in worship. The poet calls us, in turn, then to come and see God, and then to worship him and glorify him. Now, glorifying God, of course, happens in in all of life, but this psalm specifically focuses on corporate worship. And today, we're going to look at four things that we can learn here, that we can do to glorify God together here as a congregation. And those four things are this, engage, tell, pray, bring. Engage, tell, pray, bring. So we engage in worship. We tell the story of God. We pray our suffering and our abundance. And we bring our offerings. So let's read here from Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds to the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. 
I think it's a question that we often ask. Well, how do we worship God well? And this psalm, I think, gives us some, a, a great deal of help in this. And I'll just say right up front, this is not exhaustive by any means. We could have many, many sermons about how to worship God well, both together, gather as a congregation, and also in all of life. But again, we'll only address four that we see here in the psalm. And the, and the first one is, we engage in worship. We engage in worship. So this psalm begins with a call to worship. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Why do we need a call to worship? Well, a call to worship is an invitation to come into the presence of God. So children, it's a little bit like when your mother calls you for dinner. So she might say at dinner time, dinner's ready, come to the table. When I was a boy, we had this, this big hand bell, and occasionally when we were out and about, maybe in the barn or down at the creek, we'd hear this bell come ringing over the, the, the plains there, and we would know that that was the call to come in. Something was going on, and it might well be the, the call to dinner. So wherever we were, it was time to run to the table. Well, this call also happens all the time in the Psalms. So example, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The call to worship is that bell that helps us to actively turn our focus on God so that we can bring our bodies and our hearts and our minds from wherever they've been scattered and to come running to feast at his table. So my encouragement for you is when we have the call to worship here at CMF, actively work to heed that call. It's a chance to gather your thoughts and your focus from wherever they are out and about. And when you hear the call to worship, this is an opportunity to turn your focus and your heart and your thoughts to God. But once we heed that call, what should we expect? The call to dinner is not just a call to come to the table and watch other people eat. The call to worship is not just a call to come and watch the people up front do stuff. The call to worship is a call to engage. Worship is active. It's not just enough to show up. Worship makes demands on us. It's a little like, like being a parent. A dad is one who gets involved, who plays with his children, disciplines them, changes diapers, piles people into the van, holds the baby. If a dad only shows up, but then just sits on the couch and doesn't get involved, we say he's not really being a dad. And in the same way, if a worshiper just shows up, but then sits on the pew and doesn't get involved, he's not really being a worshiper. Well, how do we do this? we engage the whole self. And I'd like to look particularly at three things, heart, mind, and body. And we find all three of those here in this psalm. Engage the heart. So look how engaged the poet is with his heart here, with his emotions. Verse one, shout for joy. He's excited about God. Verses five and six, he's overwhelmed with how awesome God is and what he has done for the children of man. Verses 10 to 12, he weeps because life is hard. 
You, God, he says, have tested, tried us, brought us into the net, let men ride over our heads. Verse 18, he looks into his own heart and he says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It's easy for us to be self-protective, to be kind of guarded and just kind of keep everything safe and vanilla. But I think we do well to be open to the full and uh, to, to the full array of emotional engagement that we see throughout the Psalms. Shouts of joy, cries of grief or penitence, hot anger, desperate pleading. When these are done before God and to God, they honor God. Secondly, engage the mind. The thoughts of the poet here are grand and lofty because they are thoughts about God and how we relate to God. To understand this psalm takes a very attentive mind. Do you find it demanding to follow the scripture readings here, make sense of the sermon, understand the hymn? Applying your mind to understanding is part of worship. It takes effort and attentiveness. In the church at Corinth, ecstatic utterances in an unknown tongue were one way that they glorified God. But the Apostle Paul saw that and cautioned them that heart worship by itself, I think he calls it spirit in the spirit, but I think he's he's kind of talking about this sense of heart worship. That heart worship is insufficient. Mind worship is also required. And so, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he gives this direction. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Well, that's a good model of how we need to come. We need to come with our spirits, but we need to come with our minds as well. God is not simple. His word is profound. To glorify God requires that we engage our minds. So as you sit in Sunday school, as you sing hymns, pray, listen to the sermon, engage your mind to understand. Capture every bit that you can. And don't Get discouraged if your mind wanders off and sniffs the flowers here and there. Just patiently keep bringing it back and keep working to engage mentally with the various things that happen. And I think over the weeks and months and years, as we keep working to discipline our mind in worship, we will find that it will pay fruits. We'll, it will grow, we will grow more and more in our understanding of God and of his word. So, engaging the mind is one key way in which we worship God. Thirdly, engage the body. The poet here is not going to let us simply sit back and relax. We are called to shout, to sing, to give praise, to say, to come and see. These verbs are imperatives, they're commands, and they expect a response. Here we find something very enlightening about the nature of worship. It's physically active. Worship is not something we go to observe, like a soccer game 
or if it were a soccer game, it would be built, the field would be built without bleachers because we're all expected to be on the field playing. Like soccer, worship requires that we bring our bodies. It burns calories. Here in verses 1 to 4, one of the major actions is singing. We're called to shout and sing and say, but the poet gives special emphasis here to singing. It's mentioned three times, and it's an emphasis that we see throughout Scripture. So this sermon isn't about singing, and I don't have time to talk about why singing is important, but God does see it as important. The Bible has over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. We're commanded twice in the New Testament to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I'd like to say something here to two different groups of people about this singing. First is to those who enjoy singing. It's possible to sing brilliantly and not worship God. I enjoy singing, but I don't know how often I've caught myself just mouthing the words, but I'm mentally disengaged. God, through Isaiah, accuses Israel of drawing near with their mouth and honoring him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's a form of hypocrisy because we're going through the right motions, but internally, we're somewhere else entirely. So I encourage those of you who sing and who enjoy singing to also be sure that you have hearts of adoration that are turned toward God and minds that are engaged and thinking about what we're singing here. Secondly, to those of you who don't love singing, I believe it's possible to not feel like singing and not want to sing and still sing. And that's not hypocrisy. Back to the example of parenting. You may not feel like disciplining your child or getting off the couch to change a diaper, but you do it out of love. Your love here is demonstrated not by what you feel, but by what you do. And I would encourage you to sing as well, not particularly because you want to or feel like it, but because God exhorts you and encourages you to. Now, some of you may say, but I don't know how to sing. First off, I want you to hear me on something. That's okay. It's okay to not know how to sing. I have observed people who can't sing on tune, but they still are singing with a joyful face, and they are honoring God. And I'll tell you, that blesses me. Truth to tell, I can't see God as really being amazed at any of our singing abilities. So sing the best you can. And if you don't know the notes or pitches, then just read the hymn out loud while the rest of the congregation sings and bless the Lord that way. But secondly, I'll just toss this to you. If you don't know how to sing and you want to, I invite you to talk to me. You're not the only one. And I'd love to work together with you to give you the to help you get the tools that you need to learn to sing a little bit better. All of us had to learn it at some point. So the first big response to God in worship is to engage heart, mind, and body. Secondly, we tell. We tell the story of God. We proclaim God, 
We proclaim his character and his deeds. And I believe here lies the heart of worship. Verse 5 expresses the central idea of this psalm, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds to the children of man. Why is coming and seeing what God has done so important? A very simple definition of worship is this, right response to God, right response to God. So God reveals himself and we respond. For example, God speaks his word and we listen. He instructs us in right living and we obey. The essence of worship then is this pattern of revelation and response. God reveals us, God reveals himself to us, and we respond to him as he desires. Now, this may seem obvious, but think about this. If we're to respond to God, then we must perceive God. To respond rightly to God, we must perceive God rightly. Well, why is this? If you want to love a friend truly, you have to know that friend truly. You really can't love somebody that you've made up. I remember as a teen being madly in love with a certain girl who I didn't subsequently marry. Let that be a lesson. But I didn't really love her. I only loved my idea of her and, and of what I wanted her to be, which was breathtakingly mysterious and madly romantic. I think it's possible to love our idea of God without actually knowing God. In worship, then, it's absolutely essential that we perceive God rightly, that we focus on him and his character and his deeds. In this way, we grow in our knowledge of God, who he is and what he does. The way we come to know God is to tell his story and to hear his story. So when we tell the story of God, we come to recognize, we remember how incredibly active he is throughout all of history. And so in verse 6, he turned sea into dry land. You're familiar with that story. You've heard it often. They passed through the river on foot, another story. God's people tell the story of how God did the impossible. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, across the mighty Jordan, into the promised land. This is not a story of some remote event millennia ago. This is our story. I love this little line in verse 6. Did you see that? Centuries after the deliverance from Egypt, centuries later, The poet looks back at that event and he says, there did we rejoice in him. He owns it. It's his story. We too, looking back, see ourselves there in Egypt, coming through the Red Sea, among the people of God. And we can say, there did we rejoice in him. God's actions in the past become our hope in the present. When we tell the story of God, we see how incredibly active he's been throughout world history. Note verses 6 to 7. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. 
And then this warning, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. When we see God at work in the nations of Israel and Egypt and Assyria, we remember that God is active now in the nations of England and the U.S. and Iraq. Hearing the story of God, we grow in confidence that God is active in our world today in a way that tomorrow's headlines will not proclaim. But God is also active in our own lives personally. Verse 16 models something very important in the lives of God's people. Now it's not we, now it's I. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. We sometimes call this personal testimony, but it's another way of telling the story of God, but on a very personal level. This is a normal and a vital part of body life, telling each other what God has done in our lives. It's vulnerable, but it's tremendously encouraging, and it honors God. We need to rehearse the story of God here at Calvary. One way that's currently happening is down in the children's assembly. And so we have some young men who are down there faithfully Sunday after Sunday after Sunday telling the story of God. And it's a blessing to see those children down there listening, popping their hands up to answer questions. It's a very shaping thing for them. But of course, we as adults need this as well. How can we grow? in telling God's awesome deeds in the past, but also in telling his personal te- our personal testimonies of his goodness toward me. One thing I think about as we tell the story of God is, is particularly in our singing is one of the places we tell the story of God. And uh, the, the reason particularly that I uh, took Psalm 66 and tried to put parts of it into poetry and asked Douglas to compose it, which he graciously did, is is that singing is a key way in which we can sing the word of God and take it with us throughout the week. And I'm a little dismayed as I look at the hymnals that we typically sing from, how little we are actually singing scripture in there. And I'd like to see us move toward singing more scripture. It's a way of telling the story of God. A third way to worship and glorify God, then, is to pray to pray our suffering and our abundance. Listen again to this lament as God's people pray their difficulties. Verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Troubles are a fertile place for the imagination. I hardly have to be sick more than a day or two before I'm imagining all kinds of ways I'm likely to die in the near future. Corporate worship is also a fertile place for the imagination. In worship, our imaginations are shaped into God-shaped ways, and we begin to see past the obvious reality of our troubles to the less obvious reality of the presence of God in those troubles. In worship, we remember that God has consistently brought his people from trouble to a place of abundance. And we can imagine that he can do that very thing for us. For some reason, our difficulties are just difficult. (laughs) Some people are very open about their difficulties, and they will talk about them Uh, with each other or on social media, but sometimes forgetting 
to bring God into those difficulties and to pray them in the presence of God. I think more of us are probably just pretty hesitant to bring our real struggles and our difficulties out into the open. And I don't know, is it maybe that we're thinking that we have to live the victorious Christian life, which is, of course, a life above struggle and pain? Is that maybe the only way we really glorify God? And yet, the Psalms talk frequently about pain and difficulty. The Apostle Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What better way to deal with our troubles than to pray them with each other? Praying our troubles to God and our deliverance from God helps us to put our experiences in proper perspective. Verse 10, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Let us be encouraged. Ultimately, God always brings his people to a place of abundance. There's one more way that we note here that we may glorify God, and that is by our offerings. Offerings have always been a part of worship. Under the old covenant, worshipers would bring an offering in keeping with their economic status. So it might be anywhere from a bull all the way down to a pigeon. Here in this psalm, the the offerings have a certain lavishness to them as he talks at length about burnt offerings, which destroys the whole thing. Um, And he talks about rams and bulls and goats. So uh, let's note a few things here about offerings. First, offerings are costly. I asked Kevin Rohr, so how costly is a bull? And he said, well, and of course, right, there's a whole range, but at least a thousand, and it could go, and I'm sure it could go soaring way beyond that as well. Offerings are costly. Secondly, offerings are a response of faithfulness. God has always required offerings from that initial death in the Garden of Eden to the cross of Christ. Because of Jesus, our offerings today serve a different function, but we still respond to God in obedience by bringing offerings. Peter shows us that offerings are a key way of honoring God in 1 Peter 2.4, when he says this, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Well, in the New Testament era, when we're no longer bringing bulls or goats or pigeons, what kinds of offerings are expected of us? We'll only look at three here. First, we offer our entire lives. Remember Romans 12.1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offering our entire lives as a living sacrifice. That means living to God in obedience, not just Sunday, but Sunday through Saturday. That's a key way to worship God. All the other offerings we may bring mean nothing if we are not living in obedient worship to God day after day after day. Secondly, and you know this one's coming, from the earliest days of the church, they've always taken up a collection. So as mundane and as costly as that seems, it's a response of faithful obedience, and it's one way that God gives us to worship him. Hebrews says this, 13, 15, do not neglect to do good 
and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is one way that God uses to accomplish his purposes in the world. Thirdly, Hebrews also tells us that praising God is an offering. So in 13.15, we have this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips... Let me, let me read that again. 13.15, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And as we discussed before, this offering of praise can be costly for a variety of reasons. But this offering of praise is a response of obedience that glorifies God. So these four areas, engage, heart, mind, body, tell the story of God, pray your suffering and abundance, bring your offerings. I hope these may be helpful in giving us some very concrete ways in which we may worship and honor God. And I pray that we would be people who would enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, who draw near with a true heart, and who are amazed and overwhelmed by God as we witness his goodness and his grace toward us in all the saving acts of God throughout history, and particularly his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so to you, I say, come and see what God has done. Could we have a song?